Hello and thank you for watching. My name is Bruce Anderson. I'm a nurse practitioner at Mercy Hospital in Iowa City. Um, have been there since 1992. Uh, also, I am a nurse practitioner and on-call nurse for Iowa City Hospice and have been doing that for approximately 12 years. So, my uh, talk today will be uh, related to an approach to pain assessment, but it's going to be from the practice side as opposed to the research side. So I do want to tell tell anybody right up front if you're expecting that I'm going to go, go through a number of uh, research tools and tell you the finer points of those, you'll probably be disappointed because I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus primarily on practice issues and how I apply uh, practice issues to the patients that I see. So um, with that being said, uh, we'll get started. Uh, first thing I want to tell you is that I, I don't have any financial interests or relationships with any of the people or products that we're going to talk about. Um, I wish that I did, I suppose, but I don't. So uh, The objectives for today uh, include uh, talking about the relationship between cure and comfort. And again, my background is hospice, uh, especially the last few years. So. I will uh, focus on some of those concerns, maybe more than the others. Uh, we'll also talk about major methodologies used for pain assessments in a practice setting and some of the advantages and disadvantages of each form of assessment. Uh, we'll also talk about techniques you can use when uh, you attempt to do an analgesic trial, uh, which is actually one of the forms of uh, assessment. And then we're going to talk about some of the uh, pain assessment tools that are available in the settings for which they're intended to be used. So the overview is uh, the continuum of care and then I wanted to talk about why we assess pain and then we'll talk a little bit about types of assessments and then uh, the tools that can be used and then some practical applications. My background, as I said, is intensive, uh, was intensive care for approximately 25 years before I left uh, the intensive care unit when I became a nurse practitioner. And at the same time, I started working for hospice here in Iowa City, primarily as the night call person for emergencies and things like that, which actually was a great experience for picking up and having to learn um, how to treat patients because it was usually in the middle of the night without a lot of backup uh, services. So I had to learn pretty quickly and some of the things I'll tell you about were experiences from those 12 years. The last six years I also worked for the hospitalist service here in Iowa City at Mercy Hospital and those uh, patients are more pe people with acute pain management issues uh, on a general medicine floor. So we'll talk about some of those things as well. I wanted to talk uh, first about a continuum of care which exists between cure and comfort. And this is again primarily from the hospice arena, but it's also important to have uh, some feel for this, for what's important to people when you're trying to look at pain management. And uh, hopefully this will be more self-explanatory as we go through. I'm going to back up and wiggle my arms around a little bit for a minute because I found that's the best way to um, explain this. When I do this in a live setting, I'm usually standing up and can really wave my arms around. But let me back up here and hopefully this will come off okay. Um, when people become faced with a life-threatening illness, and if this hand represented their priority to get better, and this hand represented their priority to be comfortable, their priorities are going to be like this. When they first are diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, they're going to do whatever they can to get better. Um, you know, they're willing to do chemotherapy, radiation, uh, surgery if necessary. They're willing to put up with a little pain to live, essentially, is what that amounts to. As time changes and their chance for becoming cured from that disease becomes less and less, their priority for comfort becomes more and more until by the time they get to a hospice or palliative care setting, their priorities are exactly the opposite. And now 
being comfortable is what counts and being cured is what you would hope for, but you, you know that that's not going to occur. So uh, again, the priorities go from this early on in the disease process to this by the time uh, we see them in the palliative care arena. I hope that you got a chance to see it. I hope the effect was the same with me doing this instead of uh, waving my arms all the way out, but I think you get the idea. So again, as the disease progresses, cure is less likely, comfort becomes more important. Cure is sacrificed for comfort later on in the disease process, and then at that point, patients stop taking chemotherapy or radiation because of the side effects. They're not going to allow as many invasive tests as they may have previously. Cure and comfort are not mutually exclusive, but often they contradict each other. And just to belabor this point a little further, um, if you compare the two in priorities, cure is the focus early in the disease process. Invasive tests, procedures, courses of therapy, etc., are really judged by what they do to the disease process so that chemotherapy is successful if the tumor shrinks or radiation is successful if the tumor shrinks or, you know, so the focus is what the procedure does to the disease at that point. Cure the disease is a primary objective and everything else is secondary. When you move to a comfort model, comfort becomes a major focus. Invasive tests, etc., are judged by what they do to the patient at this point. So even simple things like a Foley catheter, you always weigh, you know, is the benefit going to be greater than the discomfort for the patient? Comfort is the primary objective. All others are secondary. The, the role this plays when you talk about pain relief is a little bit different in that everything is a cost balance analysis when you get, you know, later in the stages. And so, um, People almost turn this 180 degrees and where you think they'd want more pain relief frequently, they'll want less because they're worried about uh, either, number one, addiction, which is crazy when you're dying, of course. Uh, number two, uh, they're worried about becoming over, overly sedated. And so we have to talk to people about, you know, the cost and the benefit of pain management for them as they go through the palliative care process. And again, people are not typically as excited for pain relief as you might think or hope that they would be. Palliative care is the care which is intended to increase the comfort component throughout the entire process. So whether they're like this or like this, you can still have some palliative care. It's really the whole purpose of palliative care is to promote comfort. So it can include aggressive treatments, such as putting in implanted epidural pumps if you need to. It can be something as simple as mouth swabs for people. So palliative care in its purest form is just anything that will increase comfort. My last uh, point, kind of in the theoretical realm, um, that I want to talk about is uh, application of Maslow's hierarchy of need for living and dying. And you know about it for living, you know, that you have physiologic needs first, and then safety, and you can't really move up to the higher levels of, you know, safety and security and self-esteem, and, and, and then finally self-actualization, which is what we all kind of hope for. And again, you know, it's, it's kind of, you have to have a place to live and uh, food to eat and things like that, and then you know, you move up those, that pyramid for finally reaching self-actualization. Well, it's the same thing, in, in my mind at least, in the dying process, is that, you know, we all kind of have this hope that as somebody is dying, a good death would include, you know, being able to finish up their unfinished business and telling their loved ones goodbye and doing all those things and feeling good about themselves and their life and those sort of things. But it's really pretty hard to do that if you can't breathe or you're in terrible pain. And so I have long felt that the role of hospice, and especially nursing in hospice, has been to meet those physiologic needs um, and to get that realm kind of under control so that the higher level things can actually occur. 
And that is still pretty much how I think about that. And that's, again, where I think the role of pain control is very important, um, in, especially in hospice care, but also in just general care of the patient overall, because people cannot reach their higher levels and be you know, the best people that they can be if they're um, uncomfortable and have lots of problems. So that brings me now finally to why, why do we do pain assessments? Pain assessments help provide some concrete measures to a very abstract concept. You know, pain is very, very um, personal and situation dependent. Uh, and comfort as well are very personal and uh, situation dependent. We could have different expectations between individuals and even within the same individual depending on the situation. You know, so if I'm out, um, say, floating around on my boat in the summer and I'm having a lot of fun, I might be able to even put up with a little pain from uh, sunburn or something like that, whereas if I'm doing something I really don't want to do, my pain level or threshold might be very low. So um, again, the idea of a pain assessment really, I think, is to tr try to make the abstract thing a little more concrete. And so why would you want to do that? Well, the other thing uh, is trying to put some sort of a measurement on pain helps you monitor progress towards controlling pain. And it's also, for people that are doing research, extremely useful to help measure whatever the, the abstract thing is that you're trying to measure, pain or comfort or whatever. And then finally, one of the things that's coming down the road in the hospice uh, care, and I think might already be in long-term care, is that reimbursement is really going to be, you know, in this day of uh, pay for performance, you have to be able to have some way to show that you're meeting patients' pain needs and relieving their pain. Almost to the point that you're better off if you have somebody come in in pain and make them better, that makes you look better than if you just keep them comfortable all the time. But at any rate, in the future, probably within the next five years, there probably will be some reimbursement constraints, hospices in particular, where it's going to become very necessary to show that you are controlling or improving patients' pain levels. So how, what are some of the forms of uh, measuring pain? There's really five categories that I've come across in the literature, and these include uh, self-reporting, proxy reporting, observed criteria and general observation in an analgesic trial. And I'll tell you real briefly what each of those kind of means now, and then we'll go into them in more detail. Self-reporting is kind of what we're used to, where we have patients tell us what their pain level is on a scale of 1 to 10, or using a face thing, or even just saying, I, have, I don't have much pain, or I do have pain. You know, that's the patients telling us what their level of pain is. Proxy reporting is where somebody else reports for us because a patient can't for one reason or another. And the best example I can think of for that is probably like a spouse of an elderly person, somebody who knows that patient very well, uh, or the parent of a child. Um, you know, I think of these, uh, the proxy reporting, I think of as more uh, somebody that has an intimate knowledge and knows that patient pretty well and can say, you know, this just doesn't look right. This isn't how they normally are. Uh, the next one is observed criteria, and that's where all the pain, pain scales come in and all the things that are, you know, where you really try to have some objective data and uh, standards that you use to measure against. So that's the observed criteria. The next one is general observation, which basically means that you don't really have a, a codified system. You just kind of observe the patient and make an, a determination as to whether or not you think they have pain or not. And so that, that's what that is. So essentially, it's pretty loose. And then the last thing um, is an analgesic trial. And what that is, is that's where you actually put the patient on medications and then you monitor 
um, to see how much medications they're using and how many PRN medications they're using and things like that. And you titrate the medication regimen based on what they're using. And that's called an analgesic trial. And I do want to talk to you about those. Um, I found that to be very helpful uh, in the practice with hospice especially. So before we start discussing the types of pain assessment, I thought it might be a really good idea just to review what types of pain were, are commonly seen. Um, and there may be some implications as to how you assess those different types of pain based on, again, on what uh, the form of, of the pain is. So first of all, pain can be described by duration. It can be either acute so usually acute pain is where you have a short duration. There's a clearly recognizable cause. And that is the type of pain where you're more likely to have physical findings such as heart rate increased or blood pressure or nonverbal signs or grimacing or things like that is in the acute pain. Chronic pain is pain that usually persists after the initial injury and can be long ongoing for a long period of time. Chronic pain is more typically caused by some sort of a pathologic process. Um, and since the process is probably slow developing, the pain also is probably slow developing. There's usually less of an acute physiologic reaction to chronic pain. So you don't typically see the increased heart rate, the increased blood pressure. You may see um, more kind of chronic nonverbal signs where uh, you know, more frequent grimacing, but not the not the acute thing that we typically think of when we think of pain, uh, nonverbal signs. The other thing that's kind of interesting with chronic pain is that the patients get pretty beaten down psychologically with that, and so they're more likely to see this as irreversible, um, as meaningless pain. They might even see it as punishment from God. Uh, you know, uh, people have a hard time dealing with chronic pain. Uh, you can also describe pain by physiology. And so the first type in that realm is nociceptive pain, and that's from direct stimulation of nerves in the skin, the soft tissue, or the viscera. It can be either somatic, which is again kind of what you think of in like surgical pain, for example, where you have skin, joints, bone, um, or like from a fall or something. That's usually nociceptive pain. Uh, neuropathic pain is more from a, a nerve that's been damaged over a long period of time or stimulated over a long period of time and begins to generate the pain impulse even without the original stimulus being present. That can either be centrally generated or peripherally. Uh, typically what I have seen more is peripherally generated neuropathic pain. And again, it can be quite uh, discomforting. Also, going back to neuropathic pain, uh, that's typically described differently uh, from the nociceptive pain uh, in that it's typically more of a burning pain or an electrifying type pain and those sort of things. The most common form of, um, or one of the classic things you see of neuropathic pain is the phantom limb pain that people have after they've had a leg amputated. Uh, or something where they feel like the leg is still there and it's causing pain for them. It's from proximal nerve uh, bundles still being stimulated as if that uh, limb was still there. So now we're moving on to types of pain assessment. And the first one I had told you about was self-reporting. Self-reporting usually incorporates some form of a Likert scale or, you know, like a 1 to 10 scale. Uh, with some sort of descriptors provided. And, you know, and the typical thing we say is, well, if zero is no pain and 10 is the worst pain imaginable, where do you think you'd be? Uh, and then we ask the patients to rate their pain according to whatever descriptors we give them. The advantages of that is, are, is that if the descriptors are used consistently, it helps provide some form of structure and some consistency and, and validity for the ratings. And another advantage is because the individual is self-rating their own pain, 
then the tool should be more reliable and you don't have inter-rater uh, bias occurring. You know, um, so it's not like two people are, are rating my pain, it's me rating my pain. Now, and we'll talk about this here, I think, in the next slide. One of the disadvantages is, depending on what my mindset is at the time I do two separate ratings, if I'm happy one time, my pain might be pretty low, and I might rate it low, whereas if I could have the same amount of pain and I was in a bad mood, I might rate that pain higher. So there is some variability, but at least you know you have one person that's doing the rating, which is the patient. The disadvantages of self-rating or reporting is the biggest thing is that it requires a cognitive patient. So you have to have somebody that's um, able and willing to rate their pain. The second thing uh, that you have to have that may be a potential disadvantage is you have to have descriptors or you know something to describe pain so that the patient can understand what you're talking about. So you don't want to say, well, if you have affluent pain over here and you have uh, ins inconsequential pain over here, where would you, you know, where would you estimate yourself to be? You know, 95% of our patients are going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. So you have to have descriptors that um, the patient can understand, and you have, a, have to have a patient that's willing to cooperate with you. Uh, which kind of brings me to the second point is you have to assume that the patient is answering consistently and that's kind of what I was talking about about other intervening variables that may affect their answer and so you you have some um, some problems there one thing that's kind of a caveat though is you can kind of use that rating scale also to see what their overall well-being is so that if you know that their pain seems you know you think their pain stays fairly constant but um, sometimes they rate themselves really bad when you know they're in a bad mood and sometimes when uh, they're in a happy mood they rate their pain low and you don't know if they're in a good mood or a bad mood sometimes you might be able to get an indirect uh, judgment on that just based on how they're doing with their rating. Um, I don't know if that's true or not but it seemed like a good thought. Some other disadvantages of self-reporting are that it might be problematic, uh, or it is problematic actually, when you're comparing pain from one individual to another. So to me, the, the self-rating of pain is only for that patient. And I think that one of the problems we run into with people using self-rating pain forms is they'll say like, you know, this group of cancer patients rated their pain from a, a you know, a, a 10 to an 8 or you know, a 10 to a 6 with this with this tool. Um, and I guess if you got a big enough group, that would probably would work. But if you're doing individuals, you know, one individual rates their pain one way, or one rates the other, I think you have to be really careful that you're not, you, you shouldn't be comparing apples to oranges or even apples to apples. That, that rating scale should only be for that one particular patient, in, you know, when you're interpreting that data. The other thing then is you're kind of assuming that the, the person that's reporting the pain to you wants to give you a true and accurate rating. Um, I don't know exactly too many cases where people don't, although I have to say in the hospital setting I have seen people that you have to wonder because they're, they're either drug seeking uh, for other reasons and those people are rare but I have seen them. Um, or it's sometimes where they want to say they have more pain because they really don't want to go home because they don't have a home to go to and they'd like to spend another night in the hospital, you know, those sort of situations. And then the other thing that's a problem with self-rating or self-reporting systems is the thing that I just was a perfect example of is that sometimes the people that are supposed to act on those rating scales don't believe the, da the data that they're getting from the patients. Or, you know, so um, again, I don't know that that's a problem with the design of the tool per se as it is with the people that are using it. But again, frequently caregivers may not believe the report given to them by a patient when you're using a self rating scale. So then the next form of 
pain assessment that is useful is uh, to use proxy reporters. And this is especially useful for cognitively impaired patients or people that really, for one reason or another, can't participate in self-rating. Um, and the, the idea here is you use somebody other than the patient to observe the, pa the patient's behavior and to kind of interpret for you what they think that level of pain is. And typically it's somebody that knows that patient much better than you do and can make you know a more accurate uh, interpretation. So again, it might be the spouse of a patient that's cognitively impaired who's lived with them for the last 60 years, or it might be a, a parent of a child patient um, who knows how their child usually acts. So it's, it's, that's what I consider to be a proxy reporter. The advantage of the proxy reporters are that they have very intimate knowledge of the patient um, and probably, again, are very attuned to fine changes and, and subtle changes and behavior of that patient much more than the rest of us would be. The um, other thing that I think is very positive, typically, is that this person, this proxy reporter, very often has a very strong interest in assuring the patient's comfort. So they act really as a patient's advocate um, and are going to be watching for discomfort and reporting it to you so that you can act on it. And they're probably not going to just uh, allow themselves to be dismissed. They're going to make sure that that report that they're giving is acted upon. The disadvantage is, is that the person doing the reporting may not be very objective or they might infer their own needs into the situation so that if they're for example feeling guilty about the fact that their husband's in the nursing home now and they're not taking care of them they may um, over report a little bit um, and I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing or not but uh, I think that you know at least as we're looking through this uh, objectively there could be some problems with objectivity with some of the proxy reporters. The person that's doing that's the proxy reporter must have close or intimate knowledge of the patient. One of the things when I was getting ready for this uh, discussion that really struck me as interesting is the number of tools in which the the nursing assistants and long-term care facilities um, are frequently used as the people that have the most intimate knowledge of some of the residents there, which makes perfect sense when you think about it. So it, it's, you know, and it's exactly not the model that we use in the hospital, because uh, even just before I came here, I was in visiting a patient in a hospice unit. Um, and I walked in and spent like three minutes looking with the patient, and he seemed to be very comfortable and very fine, and uh, he'd been acting out the day before. So I went to the nurse and I said, well, I think everything's pretty good. He looks like he's doing a lot better, in which the time the nurse re reminded me that the patient had taken a swing at two staff about 15 minutes before I came in. So, um, you know, it's the people that have the best and most intimate and prolonged knowledge of that patient that should be the proxy reporters. And again, I think it's very exciting and I'm think it's nice to see that uh, some of these tools are utilizing nursing assistants as some of the best reporters in the long-term care facility. Now one of the uh, disadvantages also is then even with with that there may be very wide variability in the assessment and interpretation um, behavior and motivation and, and things like that of the um, proxy reporters. Or again, going back to the nursing assistant example, you know, if you had an unscrupulous nursing assistant, they could say, well, it looks, like, it looks pretty comfortable to me and it's time for my break, so I'm, you know, so he's fine. Um, so you need to make sure that you have, um, you know, the, the proxy reporters are truly uh, advocates for the patient. And again, I think 99% of the time that's not an issue. Then that brings us to the more, what I consider the most objective of all the tools, and that is the observed rating scales. These are scales that have been developed through uh, 
pretty rigorous research, I think. Um, and they work by observing and, rate, and rating behavior based upon a variety of sort of observable events. So, you know, the, the old standard kind of first one of these to come out that I'm aware of was the FLAC scale, which dealt with, you know, facial grimacing and, and child crying, were they consolable? you know, how active where they were, they were, they were measurable, observable sort of events that you could look at and check yes or no. And you could then infer from those what their level, what the, the patient's level of pain was. So the idea is they really want to use as objective as possible uh, some observations to determine a score. Um, and they attempt to lim limit variability of scores by again, having observable events uh, that they monitor. The advantage of rating scales is that, again, most have pretty well-established validity and reliability data. Uh, the ones that are out and published have, you know, gone through patient trials and, you know, they've been statistically evaluated and usually performed by a number of people before they're published. So. Those are, are um, usually pretty readily available, and you can expect that the uh, tool that's being used is probably measuring what you want it to measure, assuming you pick the right tool. Um, and that kind of brings me to the next point, which is an advantage is there is a bunch of those out there available for people to use. There's some for almost every specific population and setting that you can imagine. Um, there is some sort of a um, pain tool available to measure it. The disadvantages of rating scales are, number one, um, the, the biggest one in my opinion is they're frequently applied to situations and populations that they're not intended for and really haven't been tested on. And again, the FLAC scale is the one that I'm the most familiar with, and I remember when it first came out, I think it was because it was the first one of those uh, type tools that we were um, exposed to. Everybody was very excited about it. FLAC is used for uh, infants and neonates, and it you know has to do again with crying and, and um, activity and consolability and those sort of things. Um, and so what what was happening was people liked it and they started applying it in the hospital to unconscious patients but there was really no data to say at least initially that that was a good idea or that that was valid uh, and so again i think one of the issues with rating scales is that you have to make sure that you have the right tool for the right job which is now seems pretty obvious to me um, and scales are not interchangeable uh, with each other. So again, you can't switch a, a flax scale for, you know, a pain ad scale. Um, I mean, the, the data from each set is, is discrete data and they're not to be combined or used, uh, you know, together. And then even in the best of situations, there may still be some uh, rater bias, uh, you know, where, again, where people might want to score it, you might like, well, that's, you know, that's almost movement, so we'll give them a check for that, or, you know, those sort of things. Um, so you have to make sure that they're applied correctly. The other disadvantage, again, is what we talked about earlier, is that you have to make sure you have the right tool for the right situation. Um, I, and again, the flex scale is what I'm the most familiar with, and that was used for much wider applications than it was originally designed for. Um, and, you know, it always made me a little bit uncomfortable that people were using that outside of what the original intention was. Um, the other thing is, is as in most things in, in the practice world, the, Apple, the actual application of the tool might be much less rigorous than what the design was. In other words, to the people that are actually using it, use it correctly and consistently in the way it was intended to be used or do they start cutting corners? And I can tell you from uh, my years at Mercy Hospital, for quite a while I was the coordinator of um, bedside lab testing, you know, glucoses and guaiacs and 
I had all sorts of synonyms. You know, I was I was a grand poobah of poop and uh, sugar daddy and all those sort of terms that uh, when I was managing those lab tests. And I can tell you that if there's any any way you can have uh, anytime you think you have a foolproof test, you're fooling yourself because people will find a way to goof it up. And it's exactly the same thing with these tools. So you have to make sure that the application is done by people that are dedicated to doing it correctly. The fourth form of uh, pain assessment is what I call general observation. And that is where the rater observes the patient, attempts to make a determination of the level of comfort and pain that the patient's having. They're not using any specific defined tools. It's just basically you know, they probably have some criteria in the back of their mind, like, you know, does he look uncomfortable? Is he grimacing? Is he moving around? What's he, you know, what's that patient doing? But they're not well-defined criteria. Kind of the analogy to that uh, general observation thing is that um, it's kind of like myself being a husband and my wife's birthday is tomorrow. You could say, you know, do I have a defined plan for her birthday? And I could say, well, no, I'm going to use, I'm going to kind of play it by ear and uh, we'll kind of see what, what's, you know, how things go tomorrow and we'll say what we're going to do from there, which really means I haven't given it that much thought and I get better figure out what I'm going to do. And in fact, as soon as I leave here today, I'm going to go buy a gift and a card. Uh, so it's the general observation in my mind is kind of, uh, synonymous with I don't really have a plan and I'll play it by ear. Um, but it, but on the other hand, it does allow the person to use kind of their gestalt or their um, their overall impression of the patient to determine a level of comfort. And I can tell you that probably the vast majority of actual pain management that's done in the practice setting is probably done in this way. You know, I think it would be wrong to ignore that uh, I think the um, the goal should be to get more and more towards objective measures, but uh, the reality is that that's not happened yet. Um, and one of the things we may want to do is help improve people to um, at least, if they're not going to use a system, to at least have a better feeling for how to get the gestalt or how to really get an overall uh, impression of where the patient's at. So what are the disadvantages of general observation? Well, again, it's kind of the husband's plan for the birthday, you know, no consistent criteria, uh, essentially no plan. We're going to play it by ear. Um, you're unable to get any consistent data. It doesn't work at all for research. Um, the criteria that the rater uses might change from person to person or even within the same uh, rater from patient to patient or even within the same patient from time to time or event to event. So it's, you know, just really not very um, controlled at all. You're not able to quantify it or measure because there's too many variables and it's very subjective and it's prone to misinterpretation and error. So then the last form of pain assessment that I think is a very practical form is an analgesic trial. And I have used this quite a bit, you know, partly as using, partly as a way to make people feel better, but also, secondly, as a way to kind of judge where their pain is and to see how we're doing. And essentially what this analgesic trial does is it, um, you set up some medications for the patient and watch to see how they're using them and use that as your basis for determining um, how well their pain is being used. The assumption there is is that the patient is willing to take pain medicine to control their pain. What we'll typically do is we'll set up a patient, this is mostly for long-term uh, patients or patients with chronic pain um, or patients that you know are going to probably have pain so we'll set them up with some PRN medications like um, oxycodone and you know Tylenol, like a Percocet type drug. So we'll set them up with those for PRN, um, 
and see how many they take. And if we see that they're taking eight of those a day, then the next thing I will do is set them up on uh, some long-acting pain medicine to match what they're using in PRN. So I'll set them up on something that would be, you know, roughly the same equivalent to eight Percocets a day in MS Contin. I'll keep the PRN Percocet available and then see over the next several days how much Percocet they use above the MS Contin or the OxyContin. And if I see that they're still using quite a bit more um, Percocet, then I'll increase the, the OxyContin. And then hopefully at some point you'll reach a point where they're not using very many PRN medications and you've got a level of comfort. You always keep the PRN medications available so that if they need more, they can take them and you monitor that PRN usage to see if you need to increase your base. And that is essentially how it works. It's, it's essential just kind of stair-stepping process. By doing that, you can um, get up you know, to high levels of pain medications very uh, effectively and also pretty safely. Because most of the time when you're going up, you know, on this long-acting medication, you're going up to meet where they're already at. You're not giving them huge extra doses. Um, or, you know, you're not doubling their, their narcotic load, so you don't have to worry too much about the side effects of narcotics. Uh, so that's, that's typically what an analgesic trial is, is it's a way to kind of stair-step people up to the um, medicine that they need. The advantage of it is it's using objective, you know, measurable data, which is how much pain medication they're using doesn't require specific tools or training necessarily to monitor it and it tracks their status over you know a period of time so and that's another thing we'll see in hospices especially when we're having to requalify people for hospice we'll say well last month he was being kept comfortable on 40 milligrams of oxycontin a day and this month we're up to 80 to maintain the same level of comfort so obviously the disease is progressing and so there's a lot of ways you can use that data to help you determine how the patient's doing. A disadvantage is, again, it's nonspecific. Uh, there's a lot of entry points for bias and variability and those sort of things. And then the other bigger one is that it assumes that whoever's doing the prescribing for the medications is good at it and knows, you know, how to kind of adjust the medications in a logical stepwise fashion. Um, typically what I see happening is people are either too slow or too timid to respond or they way over respond and then snow the patient and then the patients and families get upset because their patient is now you know in a drug-induced coma um, and so then once you have to stop all their pain medicine altogether and then they come back and have huge rebound pain and it's just a big mess. So it's a great way to do it, but it's a good idea to make sure that the people that are doing it are fairly adept at doing it. Okay, so that's, we kind of went through the, the, the major things. We talked about self-reporting, proxy reporting, using a measurement scale, um, using your gestalt, which is, you know, essentially your overall impression. And then finally using an analgesic regimen to kind of see where pe people's pain is. There's uh, recommendations from uh, Presario and McCaffrey um, and also from the whole, uh, the you know, American Association of Pain uh, and a number of those uh, that recommend sort of a, a regular kind of process that you should use. And essentially what it is is what's right here on this slide. It talks about, if at all possible, use self-reporting. Um, and if it's not possible, you should say why. And then the next thing they say is search for potential causes of pain and, and try to correct those or treat them. And which only makes sense, you know, that if you knew that somebody had a big infection that was causing pressure or, you know, something like that, you would try to relieve whatever it is that's causing the pain rather than just treating the pain. Um, also, by doing that, you can also kind of judge what sort of pain medications you might need. Uh, 
The next thing you do is you observe patient behavior using an appropriate scale or some other method, uh, or use a proxy reporter, and then finally an att attempt at an analgesic trial. So that, that's kind of the process. Self-reporting, look for you know potential causes of pain and treat them. Uh, observe patient behavior using some sort of uh, measurable scale if you can. Use a proxy reporter to assist you and to verify the measurements that you're seeing. And then attempt an analgesic trial, uh, which is actually dual purpose in that it helps you determine the level of pain and it's also taking some intervention to help the patient uh, treat their pain at the same time. So now I want to talk real quick about things to look at when you're doing an assessment of pain. And a lot of this is probably stuff you have heard for years. What are the big characteristics you're looking at when you assess pain? And it's, you know, the site where the pain is, the character of the pain, or the description. What makes it better? What's the duration of it? Uh, how intense is it when it comes? What are things that are aggravating it or alleviating it? What kind of physical signs do they have? What kind of behavior signs? Those are all things that we kind of intuitively I think measure when we're looking for um, pain. If you were going to do something in a more formal setting, I would try to make sure that I that you characterize or describe all those sort of things as much as you can. When you're talking about cognitively impaired patients, um, what I've found is that change in their behavior is the gold standard for how they're doing with pain. If they, you know, Things like physical signs, are they moving more, moving less, are they grimacing, you know, are they having sudden elevations in their blood pressure, what's their nonverbal behavior, um, are they more restless or less restless than they had been, um, is the, the little old lady that's always been the sweet little old lady suddenly going around hitting everybody, um, you know, is there a change in that, or are they, have they stopped eating, those are all kind of things that are obviously impacted by a number of different things. But one of the things that, that uh, you should consider is um, pain whenever you see a change in some of these things. When you have an, an intact patient, this is what I've always taught the hospice nurses, is you ask them what their pain level is and then ask them again later to, even if they tell you that I have any pain right now, ask them later. Whatever they tell you, you believe it, and then you observe their behavior to see how they are. Um, and you treat them if they tell you they're having pain, and then you observe to see if it's better. And then you go back and ask them again if their pain is better. And again, you've all been exposed to that process. For the cognitively impaired patients, it's more difficult. Um, you have to observe the patient, suspect uh, pain for any behavior change, and treat pain and then observe again to see if that helped the behavior. So again, you don't always know if the behavior change was because you successfully treated their pain or if you know something else happened to them. But the observation and um, treating pain is really the best way that I know of to get through treating cognitively impaired patients. Now here are some general, uh, this kind of goes back to the analgesic trial some general principles that I usually use when trying to treat pain. Uh, first one is to document the pain and document a response. Again, so you have some sort of objective view for how you're doing. And use, this is where we typically use as some sort of a scale. Um, the one that's used a lot in hospice these days is the pain ad scale. Uh, again, which is kind of modeled after the flex scale. Um, you match the drug to the intensity and the type of pain. Um, so, you know, if somebody's got uh, a compressing tumor on their spine, more than likely Tylenol alone is not going to be sufficient to treat their pain. Um, it might be initially, but, you know, when they're looking uncomfortable, you don't add on more Tylenol, you move to a stronger drug. Uh, and that kind of goes back to the old McCaffrey, you know, or WHO, you know, pain ladder sort of thing. Adjust the dose of the medication to the level it controls best their pain without um, burdensome side effects. 
And what I typically shoot for, I don't tell people that we can 100% control their pain, but I do say, you know, we should be able to control your pain most of the time uh, unless you go out and do something that, you know, you shouldn't do. So, uh, so basically I say we try to, we shoot for about 95% pain relief because then we've got, you know, good pain relief with minimizing the side effects. Continuous pain requires continuous pain medication. Um, and you'd be surprised how infrequently or frequently that this is not done. So if you know that somebody's got a reason that they're going to have pain continuously and that reason isn't going to go away, you know, uh, uh, like for surgical patients, it might be that you're going to expect they're going to have pain quite a bit for the next two or three days, but then there's their edema and the swelling will go away and they'll start to heal, then you'd expect their pain level to go down. But if you have somebody that's got a, a big tumor, again, that's compressing their, you know, iliac uh, crest and their nerves through there, um, that's probably not going to get better and it's probably going to only increase. So you need continuous pain medications for continuous pain. Uh, use slow-release formulations given around the clock and always have a fast-acting breakthrough available. And usually the rule of thumb is, is that the breakthrough or PRN medication should be anywhere between 10 or 20% of the total dose for the day um, and can be given usually every one to two hours. And then a, another general rule of thumb is if you're using more than three breakthrough medications in a day, you probably need to increase um, the dose of your continuous medication. Now this is all strictly my opinion here, um, but this is how I like to do it is if I'm using uh, a continuous pain medication for continuous pain, I like to only have one if at all possible, just because it's easier to titrate and to move up, you know, the dosing. And same way for the breakthrough meds, I really like to have just one so that it just makes it much simpler and more manageable um, as you're trying to figure out what to do next. If you are going to increase either the PRN dose or the um, continuous dose, the dose should be at least 25% and can be up to doubling the dose if you need to. Anything less than 25% is usually not perceivable by the patient and you're just prolonging their discomfort by going small. So again, if you're going to increase, you know, if somebody was on 100 milligrams of morphine a day previously and you're going to increase their medicine you should you know move it up at least 25 percent and then you can anticipate and treat side effects and i wanted to talk about that real briefly um, when you're doing that analgesic trial that i was talking about and you move up the continuous dose and then you move up and then prns and watch that as that goes up People may have some increase in side effects as you increase that continuous dose, but any time you increase narcotics, the brain will typically readjust to the higher dose of medications within 48 hours, sometimes on the outside 96, but mostly 48 hours or less. The side effects that typically come as you're going up on the dose is sedation, and then secondly, nausea are the two big ones. Um, and then confusion, which kind of goes hand in hand with sedation. So what I really encourage people to do is to not necessarily, if they go up and suddenly they're too sleepy, you know, your reaction initially is be, oh, we way overshot, so we're going to just not give it anymore. Um, unless you really truly can't arouse that patient at all, uh, very frequently you can leave them at that dose, treat their side effects a little bit, um, or especially for some of the other side effects like nausea, treat that nausea with an antiemetic before you, you know, undo what you tried to do with the pain medicine. Because if you're escalating the pain medicine, you're doing that for a reason because they're having pain. So you want to try to stay with that plan and keep going up on that pain medicine if you can. So let's talk, um, this is my disclaimer that I did right at the outset, but I want to reemphasize this again, is that I am by no means any type of expert on the various types of tools 
that are available for measuring pain and there's a bunch of them and again if you were coming to this thinking that you're going to get uh, somebody to go through and tell you the um, finer points of all these various tools I'm sorry to disappoint you but I, that's not me I don't uh, know the relative value or how rigorous the testing is on these tools but I think they're pretty interesting and I think that when you see what their applications are um, what what I would hope would happen is you'll look at this and say that looks like a pretty interesting tool that I think we could use um, and just by way of history I want to tell you that I went back and um, got my master's degree at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire um, in the late 80s. In the late 80s, when you get a master's degree, and especially at the University of Eau Claire, it was a very theoretical, it was the day of the nursing theorists. You know, it was like the heyday. And so we were very, very fluent in speaking nursing theory back then. And, you know, and what I found was that, you know, there was, there's all these grand nursing theories out there. And for a while, it seemed like um, the schools or the students were trying to find one theory that explained everything. You know, whether it was Rogers theory or, or whoever you liked, um, you know, that would explain everything about the nursing and patients and the world. And it just didn't happen that way. What I did learn from all of that theory exposure is that there's a bunch of theories and there's some that worked really good for certain situations and some that worked pretty good for other situations. And I think it's the exact same analogy here with these uh, measurement tools is that there's some that work really good for, you know, geriatric patients. There's some that are made for neonatal patients. There's some that are made for cognitively impaired patients. There's some that are for surgery and intensive care. So there's a bunch of tools out there. And the thing to do is to look at the setting that you're going to have them uh, use in and then pick the tool that's made for that setting rather than trying to pick a tool that's going to work everywhere and adjust your setting to match the tool. So that's kind of my introduction as we look at these tools. Uh, I would really encourage you uh, to... You know, they're all available online or there's, you can just go in and type, you know, Google tools for measuring pain and you'll get a whole slew of them to look at. So look at them um, and then, um, again, try to match the tool to the setting and to your need, not matching your need to the tool that you think you like. So here are some of the tools. For acute and intensive care, there is the... Uh, Behavior Pain Scale, which is for nonverbal and verbal adults. There's one called Critical Care Pain Observation Tool, which is again for nonverbal and verbal adults. Pain Behavioral Assessment Tool for verbal adults and children. And a nonverbal pain scale for nonverbal adults. And there's probably a bunch more too that aren't listed. For pediatrics, I said cognitively impaired pediatrics, but I really what I really meant was kids that aren't going to be able to be at the age where they can really participate in a, a Likert scale. Oh, and while we're on that subject, I do want to say one other thing. Going way, way back to when we were talking about self-reporting and patients using a Likert scale, the literature I had shown is that even people, people that are mentally challenged are still able to use those scales pretty well. So uh, don't exclude using self-reporting on somebody that's got some sort of a, uh, a cognitive challenge um, or, you know, that are uh, have some mental impairment. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, you need to assess to see if they're able to do it or not, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Don't offhandedly just excuse them or exclude them from the use of self-reporting on that basis alone. So uh, backing up now to pediatrics, again, you can see there's a bunch of different things available. For long-term care, there's a checklist of nonverbal pain indicators. There's one called the Certified Nursing Assistant Pain Assessment Tool, or one called No Pain, which is Nursing Assistant Administered Instrument to Assess Pain in Demented Individuals. And again, I think it's really neat that there's these things that are utilizing nursing assistance in long-term care. Uh, 
as people that are the most probably spending the most time with the residents. And then another one is pain assessment and non-communicative elders. So, uh, and again, there's many others besides those. So in summary, it's good to use a systematic approach to review pain, uh, whether you use a tool that, you know, is there or if you're using proxy reporters. I think the key thing is to try to be as consistent as you can be and to be as systematic as you can be. Uh, a second thing is, you know, select a tool that fits the situation and the need that you have. And I would be willing to bet you that you'll be able to find a tool that matches pretty closely to what you want it to do. And then to be consistent with the application and the interpretation of any tools that are used. And with that, I think I will conclude. Um, there's references for you there. And I want to be sure and thank everybody for listening. And I hope that uh, this is useful for you. Thanks and have a good day.